Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yasmin, you've recently been taking herbatonin, which is a plant-based form of melatonin. So it's melatonin from plants versus a synthetic melatonin, which is typically what people take. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because you've been having a great experience with it, which I want to hear more about. But also in today's episode, we talked to Dr. Deanna Minnick all about melatonin, about perimenopause, about women's reproductive health, about the importance of variety in our food. We dive into so many different things. But first, I want to talk to you because you are taking Herbitonin and you're seeing great results. Tell me about it. Yeah, I feel like I'm the spokesperson. I know you were here last week and I'm like, Kea, do you want Herbitonin? Because I've been sleeping so well, but I'm laughing because it's been so game changing for me. And I actually have never really had sleep problems, but my husband hasn't been sleeping well and him moving around has just woken me up more often than not. And usually we'll bring Herbitonin with us on trips, you know, with like jet lag that has been game changing. But the other night I started taking it and we talk about this with Deanna today. It was kind of a higher dose than she recommends somebody takes every day, but I wasn't sleeping. So I think it was fine. And I took three milligrams and I swear like to be able to get that deep sleep, especially if you haven't been sleeping well in a few days was so game changing. And it was amazing because with typical melatonin, the synthetic kind that you were mentioning, Kea, I wake up and I'm like, feel groggy. I have crazy dreams. I don't have that with herbatonin. So I'm just so grateful because I know I talk a lot about this on our podcast. If I don't sleep well, I am just like a wreck. I cannot be on my game. I cannot function as well. So I'm very, very grateful for the overtonin that I tried. And I feel like this is an ad. It's not an ad at all. It's just my own personal experience. (laughs) Yeah. And Dr. Deanna really dives into the science behind melatonin today, which I think can make a believer out of anyone. It's such a fascinating episode. We also talk about something that we're both working on, which is food diversity. So diversifying the amount of fruits and vegetables that we get. Dr. Deanna actually recommends 50 different species over a very short period of time. I think it was something like two days, which felt really hard to me, but she kind of explains how you can get 30 varieties in a meal with using spices and herbs and different veggies. And it's a very inspirational conversation because it reminds you how important it is for us to eat the rainbow and not Skittles, but eat the rainbow in terms of all of the beautiful plant foods that line the aisles of our grocery store. So I know I felt really, really inspired by it. I'm always inspired by Dr. Deanna's food plates because they're so beautiful and colorful. And I think you're going to really love this episode if you are going through perimenopause or if you're struggling with sleep or if you're just looking to upgrade your diet. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So Dr. Deanna Minnick is a nutrition scientist, international lecturer, educator, and author with over 20 years of experience in academia and in the food and dietary supplement industries. She's currently serving as a chief science officer at Symphony Natural Health. She has been active as a functional medicine clinician in clinical trials and in her own practice. She's also the author of six books on wellness topics, four book chapters, and over 50 scientific publications. Through her talks, workshops, groups, and in-person retreats, she helps people to practically and artfully transform their lives through nutrition and lifestyle. She's super inspirational, so smart. We love learning from her, so let's get into it. Dr. Deanna, thanks for being here. 
I want to talk about the shift that happens with women midlife. Sometimes it can be as early as their 30s. More typically, it's in their 40s, late 40s, sometimes even 50s, where they just start to feel a little different. They kind of explain it as, I don't really feel the same. I don't feel the way that I did when I was in my 20s and younger. So we know this is called perimenopause, but what is perimenopause and what's exactly happening in the body at this time? Perimenopause is the process by which the ovaries start to decline. They start to age. They start to reduce their production, their output of hormones like estrogen and progesterone. So one of the first indications that something is awry is that the menstrual cycle will start to change. It might become more erratic, more irregular. It might be more, there might be more blood, there might be less blood. You'll start to see some changes in the menstrual cycle. So that might be one sign that things are changing at the ovarian level. So that classically is perimenopause. So peri is the time around the menopause or the cessation of menses. So when you actually have 12 months of no period, that moment at which you're at that 12-month period is considered menopause. And then everything after that time is considered post-menopause. So for women that are starting to go through the perimenopause, for some of them, it could be 15 years. For other women, it could be five years. The average age of menopause in the United States is 51, meaning that that woman has gone through 12 months of no cycle and has arrived at that moment at the age of 51. But like you said, sometimes this can be happening in the 30s and it's happening even earlier now for women. I think a lot of women are struggling with hormonal imbalances very early. They might start to see symptoms that freak them out. Like, am I going through perimenopause? Am I going through menopause when they're like 28 or 29? So it could be early or it could just be something else is going on with their hormones. So for anybody who's listening to this, if you are experiencing like all of a sudden my period is irregular, it's heavier, it's lighter, it's shorter, like it doesn't necessarily mean that this is just going to happen forever, right? That's right. And and this is where you'd want to go to your healthcare practitioner, get your labs, because there are certain marker labs, like looking at certain hormones like FSH, looking at LH, that are the signaling hormones to the estrogen and progesterone. So depending on those levels, will determine whether or not you're classically going into perimenopause. So that's a really good point, Kea. So any irregularity in your menstrual cycle doesn't mean you're going through perimenopause. It could mean you have other indications like polycystic ovarian syndrome, or you just have something called dysmenorrhea, which is kind of an abnormal, irregular uh, menstrual cycle. And, And for some of us, this can go back into our teenage years. I mean, for myself, I've had endometriosis. I've had a blocked fallopian tube. My reproductive issues started when I was a teenager. So it was no surprise for me. Like I've always been in touch with that kind of a thing. And probably you both have been the same with your own reproductive organs. It's kind of like, that's my messenger. So I could tell when things were going awry in my adult life. And when I started to enter perimenopause and what was normal and not normal. Yeah. And I'm curious, Dina, There's so many questions I have there, but starting, you know, what do you think is causing the generation that we're now to kind of have our perimenopause age shift earlier, right? And I know Kaya mentioned a good point. If you are dealing with hormonal imbalances, it might not necessarily be perimenopause, but I am talking to a lot of our customers who are like, Yasmin, my doctor said I'm in perimenopause. I'm 34. There's a lot that they did to fix it. But what do you think is driving women getting it a little bit earlier in their life versus later, closer to the average that you mentioned? That's a great question. I would say any hormonal issues. So 
when I talk hormones, we're talking insulin, which is connected to our meals and processing blood sugar. I'm talking cortisol, which is a stress hormone. I'm talking thyroid hormone. I'm talking melatonin, which is connected to sleep. So if we start to change any of those hormones and their functioning, that has a ripple through effect. In functional medicine, we talk about hormones as communicators. So if one of the hormones is not communicating effectively, that's going to change the communication to all of the hormones. So there's that. So if people have issues with sleep, with stress, with um, insulin resistance, all of this could translate into changes in perimenopause onset, especially stress. That is uh, pretty well known that if you have high amounts of stress, that that could perturb and almost kind of initiate an early onset of perimenopause. The other thing that I know both of you are really keyed into is endocrine disruptors. So when a woman has high toxic load, high toxic burden, and that could be everything from artificial blue light to plastic to parabens to phthalates to heavy metals, whatever it is, these endocrine disruptors, like their name suggests, are getting in the way of that communication and distorting the hormone web. So we see changes in fertility. We see changes in so many different types of conditions related to women's health. And also there, there is this connection into perimenopause. It's hard to wrap your head around thinking about especially the endocrine disruptors because it almost feels like, okay, you're talking about all of these things that are just surrounding us all the time. But I think specific examples are really nice, especially you mentioned blue light. I remember reading a study, and I have to find the exact numbers, that chronic exposure to blue light at night increased the risk of breast cancer yes. like significantly. And so that's kind of crazy when you hear things like that. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but what that means is that constant being on our phones at night or TV or any sort of blue lights, just overexposure can increase our risk of a serious chronic disease. You also mentioned something called melatonin, which I'd love to talk about too. Yasmin takes herbatonin, I think every night, right? I mean, Deanna, I've been taking it recently. I haven't been sleeping well um, for various reasons, but I was like, let me take your melatonin, right? I mean, I know I'd love for you to talk more about it. I took the three milligrams and I messaged Kay. I'm like, I have been sleeping so well. It's been game changing, like a deeper sleep. I feel good and refreshed. So I'm a big fan of the product. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, and, and that is one of the things that is happening to women as they get older. So when we are children, we have high amounts of melatonin that our pineal gland makes at night. So melatonin is called the darkness hormone. It's also called the vampire hormone just because of kind of that play on darkness. So when we are sleeping, when we're in that darkness, our pineal gland produces melatonin. And what's really interesting is that we're finding out that melatonin is so important from a circadian rhythm perspective and sleep. You know, all of us more or less kind of know that, but newer things about melatonin at night is that it's also important for brain detoxification. So it seems to be integral as a neuroprotective agent, and it's helping to shuttle out these toxic amyloid proteins and other types of toxic metabolites out of the brain at night. 
So if a woman isn't sleeping well, she's not detoxifying well. And we see that melatonin tracks with glutathione at night and a lot of these different antioxidant enzymes. So at night is when we're supposed to rest and repair and rejuvenate. And if a woman is not able to do that effectively, what can happen is now <laughs> the, the entire hormonal web is distorted. And, and what I'd like for us to talk about is the liver, because the liver figures in largely to women's health, especially to her menstrual cycle and even to perimenopause. So it's sometimes it's not just the total amount of estrogen that we have in our bodies, but it's how estrogen and even melatonin and progesterone are being metabolized by the liver. And sometimes the liver can make these more, you know, naughty molecules where it kind of creates the, the disruption in our body. So we might start to see more hot flashes. We might start to see more, I would say, conditions of aging overall. And the liver is really key for that restoration process. So before a woman starts to be thinking about going through perimenopause, I think it's really important to be thinking about getting your liver in order. I think of the liver like the general of the army, right? And so if the, the general has the orders to the rest of the army, the rest of the brigade, kind of like clean up this, do that that, you know, everything is in working order. But if the liver is congested, if it's fatty, you know, I was just reading an article the other day on fatty liver and how it's so pervasive. And in Chinese medicine, there is this connection between the liver and anger, the liver and stuck energy, stuck chi. I'm married to an acupuncturist. So we talk about these east-west things all the time. I mean, you we even- love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have it in Ayurveda. I mean, it's really- Throughout traditional medicine, we see this whole thing about the clock and about being connected to the clock in terms of the organs. And the liver is active at night between, I, I believe in traditional Chinese medicine, the liver time is between 1 and 3 a.m. And when do most people wake up? And especially for women going through the perimenopause, they tend to wake up, and I know this myself, at about 2 a.m. It's just like, just get up and all of a sudden you don't know why you're waking. Now that could be a lot of different things. I'm not saying it's definitely the liver, but what I'm saying is that before a woman is starting to move into her later 30s and early 40s, and even in the midst of perimenopause, it's really important to be focused on foods and lifestyle practices that would help with liver detoxification. That can actually help her with symptoms and even sleep. Yeah. I would love to talk about what are some of those liver loving practices? Anything that's stinky and sulfur containing. <laughs> and actually, this this is kind of like my, my two-part principle. Um, I like to say protein and plants, protein and plants. And the reason why, if you look at the pathways related to detoxification, you see that protein is needed for the enzymes. And we need a lot of the cofactors related to protein. And there's so much good information right now being circulated on protein and how we need more protein, especially perimenopausal women who are going to lose a lot of their bone mineral density. Skeletal muscle will not be as robust. But that protein is also important for metabolic detoxification. The liver needs protein in order to help detoxify. So all kinds of protein. I, I like to tell people to get protein in every meal. Certain people out there are talking about getting, you know, front loading your day early on with higher amounts of protein. I think that that is important because the liver, after a night of detoxification, you know, you think about, well, what do you need in the morning, right? So fueling that process. And then when it comes to plants, I think that, of course, Kaya, you would probably know this as well. <laughs> the rainbow of different kinds of plants could be effective for detox. So certain red 
colored foods like beets, cranberries, raspberries. Um, you know, you look at orange and carotenoids. I actually want to come back to orange and talk about ovaries because there's some good information about how certain of those orange colors can help with reducing ovarian aging and help to, I, I would say, um, decrease the the time that it takes to get into um, perimenopause. So in other words, we're, we're preserving the ovaries a bit longer. Yellow foods, you know, I think of prebiotic fibers. I think of um, ginger and lemon. I think of green foods, things like, you know, all the leafy greens, but also the cruciferous vegetables, which are incredible. Um, I also think of things like maca, maca root for the fiber, but then also for the glucosinolates. Glucosinolates are a certain class of compounds and plants that you also find in the cruciferous veggies like broccoli and cauliflower. And actually maca is part of that same family. So they have these detoxifying compounds. So for women, this is this is a big thing, you know, making sure that we have adequate protein, adequate plants, adequate fiber. And if you don't follow Deanna on social, you have to, because I have never seen somebody eat the rainbow more beautifully than (laughs) Dr. Deanna, your plate. It's it's truly inspirational. And I think that uh, that's like definitely something I aspire to, like getting all of those colors and knowing the benefits of each color for specific parts of our health and our bodies. And I think one thing that we're curious about is how are you are when it comes to plant protein versus animal protein how are you kind of thinking about your meal i know everybody's different everybody has different ethical reasons for whatever they're doing or religious reasons but how are you balancing this all right so i'll just talk about what i'm doing because it sounds like that's where you're coming from right this is not to give guidance to anybody because you know we're all we've got personalized aspects that you just spoke to So my premise is I eat all kinds of foods. I mean, not the processed kind, uh, but, but really and truly to take from animal and also plant proteins. I believe that diversity, dietary diversity, is a winner when it comes to things like mood, functional status, gut microbiome, immune health. So to me, when I read through the lines in the literature and what confers benefit for health overall, and this is not just for women, it's diversity. So I try not to get too attached to any particular protein source because then you're just hammering on the same types of compounds. So I actually cycle through. Breakfast is my largest meal of the day. Sometimes I'll have an animal protein. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday, I'll just give you a a real life example. Yesterday, we had black cod for breakfast. And my husband doesn't love it. He's like, oh my gosh. But you know, I'm part Swedish. So it's like my Scandinavian genes just wake up in the morning. But my husband is Mediterranean and he's thinking, what are you doing? I can smell it in the house. So, (laughs) but I, I think that's cycling it. So yesterday I did more fish. And then I had um, oysters at night. And then this morning we had chicken, you know, and I I have to kind of veer away from certain kinds of proteins. Like I am sensitive to eggs and to dairy. Those have repeatedly come up in my life. So unfortunately, I'm not always able to partake. But if I bring them in like once a week, it seems like that's okay for my body. So I think that the plate of food that you saw, Kea, was one where I had eggs. I had one egg and I did have some goat milk feta. So that's how I was getting some of the protein in that particular meal. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. 
I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. Every time I speak to you, Deanna, I'm always just so inspired to diversify my plate and that seems very approachable for me. You're not like, Yasmin, eat this, that. It's like, try different things, rotate the proteins, try different colors. Like that seems very approachable for someone like me who I don't consider myself the best cook and someone that spends a lot of time in the kitchen. So I always love talking to you. I want to go back to what you were mentioning about the color orange and how certain foods that are orange can reduce ovarian aging, which is mind blowing. So would love to talk more about that. Well, first of all, the color orange, how do you both feel about the color orange? Do you like it? Is it a color that you're attracted to? It makes me happy. What kind of feeling do you get from orange? I'm just curious. Like energized and vibrant and okay. joy. You do get that. Okay, good. So in um, the animal kingdom, it's really interesting because I wrote a whole chapter about the color orange, the psychology, and then also the food connection to orange. And one of the things that you see in nature is that it's kind of a sexy color. So it's connected to mating behavior. So for example, a fish, like a guppy, will become more orange, like a lure, like to be noticed. And that is in part through the carotenoids that are in plants. So you also see that in certain bird species where they confer more of like a bright orange plumage in order to be more noticed. (laughs) And and from a um, survival perspective, some of these carotenoids, these carotenes, right? So they're red, orange and yellow, and even some of them are a little bit green, that they translate into better sperm health and better ovarian health. So from that perspective, let's go into orange, because um, one of the biggest ahas for me was stumbling across a study in which they found inside the ovary that there were up to 13 different carotenoids in the human ovary. And if you look at the process of ovulation, like why would we have plant compounds embedded in the ovary? Well, if you look at the process of ovulation and kind of going through the menstrual cycle, there is this change of the corpus luteum. I don't know if you've, your listeners have heard that term, but corpus luteum, like yellow body, going into the corpus albicans, like kind of that ripening of the egg. And there is the change in the color. So it goes from yellow into white. And part of that yellow is connected to retinol, which is vitamin A and even these carotenoids. So separate from that, there was another study showing that women who were eating more orange-colored foods, so things like um, persimmons, mangoes, I'm just tossing out some, you know, even oranges themselves, 
that there was a connection between certain of those carotenoids, those orange foods, and helping to reduce ovarian decline. It was a pretty modest amount. It was like, I don't know, I think it was 1.3 years, but still, you know, even recently, I don't know what it is, but ever since I got back from India in 2021, I've been eating mango nonstop. It's like my body just craves mango, dehydrated mango. (laughs) And so like, for me, even this morning in our breakfast, I had fresh mango. I cut it up. It's in season. And I think that orange is an important color for women just in that way of our carotenoids and also within summertime because when the skin is, you know, when we're out in the sun and we're subject to ultraviolet light, we can have a lot of that breakdown, right? That kind of damage, the sunburn. But these carotenoids go into other parts of the body as well. So you also get a skin protective effect. So not just ovarian but breast, brain, skin, I mean, anywhere that you basically have fat in the body. So orange is for me, the reproductive color. That's so fascinating. So there's so many benefits and what a great argument for not limiting what we eat, because I'm finding a lot these days that I notice people will say, oh, well, I know that this works for me. So they don't really diversify the fruits and vegetables that they're eating. Or they might feel like I can't digest certain things, so I'm just going to avoid, you know, fruits and vegetables. And I've always had this opinion, and I'm curious to hear what you think, that we're not meant to be on restrictive diets forever, right? Like the goal is to heal the gut so that we can include these foods because they obviously have benefits. Yes, absolutely. In fact, you know, I think sometimes food ruts mean life ruts. We kind of get whittled into our own daily life. We we lose sight of the great big hole. You know, one of the comments that I typically get when I post a picture of my meal is, oh, why aren't you doing food combining? You have fruit with protein and carbohydrate. <laughs> and it's like, But all foods are combinations of different ingredients, right? Different macronutrients, different micronutrients. And with a healthy gut, like you're saying, Kaya, like longer term, we need to enable our gut to be healthy enough to take on many different types of of things within food, right? So a, a good healthy digestive system could break those things down, irregardless of these food combinations. But yeah, I think that the general goal, just to get practical, is 50 unique plant-based foods, or I want to clarify that, not plant-based. I'm going to say plant foods within seven days. So most people cycle between something like five to seven recipes in a week, you know, just on average. Um, And I've actually played this out in one of my Facebook groups just to see like where people were tracking. And once you become much more aware of it, you start changing how you're eating automatically. So we had people in the group. We had one woman in Australia who had up to 232 unique plant foods in seven days. She is vegan. So everything counted on her plate, but she still had to diversify. You, If you have a banana one day, that counts as number one. You cannot have a banana the next day and count that as number two. So I have been challenging people to try to diversify and get as many different diverse plants as you can, even in one meal. Like I even challenged my own meals. So one of them, I got 31 different plants in my lunch. And the way that I did that is through spices. Don't forget that something like a curry powder has like five different plants. So you can count those individual, you know, we're, we're not looking at the quantity, we're just looking at the quality. How many unique plant signatures did you get? 
And I'm curious. I love that you said, I was like, Dana, what's your hack to get that many? And you mentioned one is curry powder. What are some other ones that you would recommend would be more plant like forward and could be an easy addition to our meals? Well, even like a a plant protein powder that has other things in it. So in order to get my protein requirements, sometimes in the morning, like I'll do my early morning breakfast with my husband and then he goes off to work and then I go off to work. And then within like two hours, I have a smoothie that has a lot of these different plants and a lot of these different, like just this morning, I had a smoothie with, um, goodness, I had, um, I put flax in it. Like you can load up a smoothie with so many plants. Like you can make a 30 unique plant food smoothie. I bet your listeners could do that with not a problem. You know, you add in spices, you add in certain powders. You know, there are certain plant powders, green powders, in which there are like 30 different plants, right? So even if it's a small amount, you're still getting that diversity. And I think that seasonal eating is really important too, like paying attention to what is in season, what's in your local environment. I was at the grocery store this past weekend and I saw golden raspberries. Now, golden raspberries are not always at the market. <laughs> so it's like when those things appear, they're kind of like gems. It's like, oh, let's get that because nature is signaling that we may need those polyphenols, those certain plant compounds to help us with function in the body. Dana, I'm curious, do you ever get a craving or a draw to processed food? Because in my mind, you're like, that stuff doesn't even appeal to me. But I'm just genuinely curious, like, do more processed things have a place in your diet? Well, actually, I just mentioned one, really, technically. You know, protein powders are processed, right? So they are, I I, I don't want to make it look like, you know, it's uh it's whole food. It's not. It's a processed kind of food. But if we're talking about foods that would be considered more unhealthy without redeeming aspects, I think the only hankering I get is for chocolate. And I wouldn't call that a, a processed food per se, but I've got to tell you both, I really love keto cups. Do you know what keto cups are by, um, I think, what is it by Evolved? I forgot the mm-hmm. brands. I forgot the brand, but anyway, I buy them. I, I mean, what is processed food? I mean, to me, that's a great vehicle because it actually has a number of different actives and it's permissible and it actually tastes really good and it's very filling. But do I ever just like go out to like a fast food restaurant or never? Like I I don't have that inclination because it's kind of like once you know how good it is to feel good, you don't want to go back to feeling bad. And I would never sacrifice my body just for that one meal, just like a taste on the lips and then like hours of inflammation that just doesn't feel like a good investment of my energy. So that is like probably, you know, when I was a teenager, my goodness, I ate a lot of fast food. I haven't always been like this. And in fact, I did it even more when I was a teen because my mom was a health nut. So we couldn't have certain foods at home. Like we couldn't have Wonder Bread. So I grew up in the 70s. So we couldn't have Wonder Bread. We had to have brown bread and we couldn't have jelly. We could only have honey or banana on our sandwiches. So I binged, I've got to say, like when I felt all that restriction as a teenager, I just, I ate a ton of chocolate. I ate Oreo cookies. I would go to Wendy's, um, the fast food restaurant or takeout place, and I would get those Frosties. Like for me, it was things that were chocolatey and things that were sweet. And I know that that messed with my menstrual cycle. If I could go back and tell my younger self, you know, I was worried about my skin, which was breaking out. I would have gut issues. I would have period issues. I mean, my periods were so bad that I would cramp over and I'd have to leave school. So it was severe. I wasn't just kind of light on those things. Like they affected me. 
and mood-wise as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I often think about that advice that I could give to my younger self. And the one thing that comes up for me quite a bit, similar to what you were saying, is like, no one will ever regret taking care of themselves. You will only regret like not taking care of yourself and putting in those investments early on major payout, right? Like just the way that you age, the way that you feel, everything. Obviously there was a lot back then that we didn't know the way that we know now, but you know, it's it's definitely part of Yasmin and I's bigger message to get out to younger women, especially those going through severe PMS, PMDD, that there's so much they can do. And it really seems like these younger generations are starting to care a little bit more about their bodies, which is really nice to see. And um, the, the way that you were kind of mentioning, like once you know how bad it feels when you eat certain things, like you don't want to go there is kind of the way that I feel about drinking. Yes. And I think like specifically you mentioned liver health, right? So we are like, I feel like we've been talking about it nonstop on this podcast of like the way that alcohol impacts women is so significant, especially compared to men, but that is like a poison for our livers. So I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts about that. You know, that's so interesting because that's one of my hot buttons You know, when people ask me about alcohol or coffee and, you know, sometimes we try to find the studies or the reason, the rationale in order to engage in a certain behavior. I mean, even, I mean, alcohol is a big one and I don't drink alcohol. I have in the past, but I don't now because of what I was seeing in the literature. So I have certain genes that could turn on for breast cancer. And when I read the literature, it's basically zero, zero for alcohol. And then you find other studies where, you know, there's a little bit more nuance, but in general, just based on what we know about alcohol, it's like pouring fire on the liver, in my opinion. I just feel like it stresses the body. What is it covering up? What are we using that liver, that alcohol for? Um, and quite honestly, because I don't drink, I, when I would ask people what they would have and they would tell me, it's kind of like it was the norm, like every day coming home and having a couple of drinks. I just felt that that was a lot. And so in some ways, it's societally accepted, right? We see the Mediterranean diet, oh, one to two glasses of wine. Um, even my mom, who's very healthy, we just had an argument the other day about alcohol. <laughs> I just, I said, mom, but the literature, and, you know, and she's like, well, I do so many other things. So people may just want to justify. On the other hand, I think coffee is different. Coffee does have some personalized use. To me, alcohol just feels like zero, none. I just, unless people are just, you know, socially engaging and they really feel like they need a little bit of alcohol or they want to partake. I I just feel like energetically, like if we go nutritionally, that's one place. I just feel like energetically, I don't know. I just feel like alcohol brings us down. Where is it taking us in terms of our behaviors? Why aren't we feeling comfortable with expressing who we are with the people around us? Why do we need it to be more socially apt and conversational. I don't know. I just, I don't like to have anything that I'm truly addicted to. Coffee, I I think on the other hand, I started drinking coffee. I know you didn't ask about coffee, but I kind of see like the alcohol coffee is like this balance for women going through their lives. And I would say just to close off on alcohol, for women who aren't convinced, try going without alcohol and see how it changes your period. You know, especially if you have like a family history of breast cancer, I would really be thinking about alcohol consumption. And I'm not the only one saying that. I I think it's really important. And think about your liver health, right? But with coffee, I, I think that's personalized as well. Some people do really poorly on coffee and they really shouldn't drink it. Those are the people that get anxious, their heart rate goes up. Um, and then there are people that do really well on coffee, like 
for myself personally, uh, I could have a double espresso in the evening right before bedtime and go right to sleep. It doesn't affect me. I almost would like to have an effect of the caffeine, but it doesn't work like that for me. I just metabolize it too quickly. So those are the kind of people that are called fast metabolizers, and they tend to fare quite well from a health benefit perspective, neurodegenerative, heart you know, there are a number of benefits for caffeine. You know, caffeine in those cases could be used as a detoxifying agent. It can move things through the liver fairly quickly and spur things, catalyze things. Whereas for other people, it could lead to more issues. So that's why I think that you kind of have to take a nuanced approach. And also caffeine can change melatonin uh, metabolism. It can get in the way of melatonin. So that's something to think about as well. And is there a cutoff when you think about caffeine, if someone does well with coffee and they love it, is there a certain cutoff where you're like, all right, if you have it before one, it doesn't impact your melatonin at night? Earlier is better. I don't think that studies or, you know, just even clinically that there really is that degree of granularity. But what we do know is that melatonin starts to go up as it gets dimmer through the day. So the way to ensure healthy melatonin levels is to get bright light at night. I'm sorry, not bright light in the morning. (laughs) Like refrain from bright light at night, (laughs) artificial. (laughs) Okay, so bright light exposure first thing in the morning actually does help with nightly melatonin. So it's not just um, making sure that we don't get the bright light at night. It's bright light in the morning. And then as it gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, our melatonin starts to go up. So that would be the time not to be drinking coffee, right? So like, you know, depending on the season, the time of year, if it starts to get dark at like 4.30 or 5 p.m., you know, be thinking that, you know, it might take like 60 to 90 minutes to run that caffeine through, maybe longer for somebody with slow metabolism. So maybe 12 noon would be the cutoff to enable yourself to have a little bit of a buffer before melatonin is now on the rise. And I'm curious, I know we were talking about earlier, uh, I'd love for you maybe to talk more about herbatonin, because clearly I mentioned I've been taking it every night. Is there like a certain cap that you say, you know what, Yasmin, as someone in the reproductive years, maybe you shouldn't be taking three milligrams every night. Like what would you recommend in terms of dosage for someone who's like, you know, Deanna, you're talking a lot about melatonin. I think I could use that support. Sure. Okay. So two things with herbatonin. So what is herbatonin? I actually have some on my desk. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm going on TV on Friday. So I'm going to bring some of this to show, but herbatonin is a plant melatonin made from rice, chlorella, and alfalfa. So no fillers, no excipients. It's straight from the plant. And as you have seen, Yasmin, it looks green. It's not chemically synthesized. It's not a white powder. It's not in a gummy. It is a small capsule with that green material in it. It's been tested head to head against synthetic melatonin and found to be superior, like significantly so, like 646% greater anti-inflammatory activity. It's uh, 958% greater in its ORAC value and protects the cell. And it's because what we're surmising is that there are other things in that herbatonin other than just melatonin. So I want to answer your question in two ways. The three milligram dose that you have is more intended for, you know, jet lag, more of an acute use, because that's a pretty high dose in my opinion, right? So if we look at what the average body produces and specifically the pineal gland, what does the pineal gland produce throughout the life cycle? Well, children, are pretty high. They're on the order of about 0.9 milligrams. And then as we become older, we go through puberty, it starts to drop, 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 drop. And like through middle age, we're at about 0.3. And then we move into our 50s and we're at like 0.1. 
So that's where we start to see the rise of a lot of chronic conditions, right? So if we're just looking at healthy replenishment with aging, because more is not always better, and we want to utilize the other benefits of melatonin beyond sleep, we want the mitochondrial protection, we want the immune protection, we want the brain health benefits at night, then I think that on a longer term basis, that 0.3 is more of a physiological dose. In fact, that goes back to research from Dr. Richard Wortman at MIT, a well-known university in which he was looking at different doses. And he found that 0.3 was really like that sweet spot. And that's what a lot of other opinion leader organizations are recommending. Like I get a little bit concerned. I see you know, things about children just popping gummies with melatonin. Children, in my opinion, do not need a supplemental source of melatonin unless they have some kind of condition like ADHD, autism, where melatonin might be a benefit. And that has to be done with a healthcare practitioner. But in my opinion, you don't need that then. For aging, and I even just was listening to Brian Johnson, who I totally just, I just listened to Drew's um, podcast with him. He takes, it is so fast and he takes melatonin. So I was like, yes, his, his anti-aging scientists have, has dialed that in for him. Right. And because he's vegan, he would love herbatonin actually, because again, it is vegan. There is no, there, there's nothing in it. It's, it's pure. Um, So obviously the plant melatonin and everything else, but nothing else that is added. So I think from that perspective, we have to think about longer term effects with aging. So again, filling the the potholes in that road to becoming older. Like if we're just filling the potholes and replenishing, taking that 0.3 milligrams would be the best choice. But if you have certain bouts, so I am going through perimenopause. I did call upon the three milligram dose because I was having some issues with sleep. And that helped me, right? So being that melatonin has an anti-inflammatory benefit, it's also antioxidant. And I never thought I would be a woman that would get hot flashes. I felt like, well, wait a minute. I'm like eating right. I'm living right. I'm exercising right. Why am I getting hot flashes? Well, as you start to go into that deeper, you start to see that women with cardiovascular indications, sometimes underlying they start to surface during the perimenopause. So sometimes hot flashes can be an indication that you've got some cardiovascular issues to address, which, you know, many people, that is like a number one thing in our society, right? And that's in my my family history. So in theory, you know, based on the science of melatonin, we would know that it would help with inflammation. So taking a bit more to help quell those patches of heat and that temperature Uh, was very important for just helping me to get to sleep through the night, quite honestly. And one thing that people don't know about melatonin is it brings down your core body temperature. So as women going through perimenopause start to have that dysregulation in the brain on their body temperature, melatonin can help, again, smooth that out so that you can maintain healthy core body temperature through the night. Wow, that's so interesting. What I learned in school from a few of my professors is that they were concerned about people taking melatonin because it's a hormone. And so they're like, supplemental melatonin is problematic, is what they kind of put in my brain in grad school. And all of a sudden, I see all these people taking melatonin. But I think what I'm understanding is that synthetic melatonin and herbatonin from plants is different. The safety is different the effects can be different. 
And so where did, where did that idea kind of come about? Because I see it quite a bit. And, you know, for me, a student hearing my professor saying, you shouldn't be giving anybody melatonin, like they need to be working with a doctor. You know, how do you kind of explain all of that? Well, one other thing, I mean, let's look at vitamin D. Vitamin D is an, a very interesting vitamin, right? Because it's actually been called a, a hormone. So what constitutes a hormone? What actually makes something a hormone? Well, typically you need a receptor on a cell. So that would make vitamin D a hormone. That would make vitamin A a hormone. That would make a lot more things hormone-like. Now, vitamin D is not released from an endocrine gland in the true sense, but the skin is highly endocrine. And that's where we have a lot of our vitamin D, right? So even in our article, we talked about how melatonin is like the next vitamin D. So in my opinion, for people who don't know a lot about melatonin, they just think of it in the classical sense of like, oh, it's just from the pineal gland, they don't realize that the gut produces 100 to 400 times the amount that the pineal gland does. And it's not in response to light. So there are different types of melatonin in the body designated for certain things. The mitochondria can make melatonin. So, you know, what what we see is that melatonin is it has so many functions beyond a hormone. So I would say that for most people who don't understand the full breadth of what melatonin is doing. They just think of it as the pineal gland hormone, but it's much more than that. It's a mitochondrial regulator. It's an immune modulator. It's quite honestly, I I see it as an antioxidant. And what's unique about it is that it's fat soluble and water soluble. So you find it in the brain, you find it in the blood. So if we look at the evolution of melatonin, it was part of the transition of single-celled organisms into multi-celled organisms. And as part of having that mitochondria, melatonin came into the picture. And melatonin is even used in plants as a growth factor. Like it stimulates the production of phytochemicals. So yes, it works as a hormone, but it flexes. You know, I just gave a presentation for Dutch, which is a lab, and they had an interesting social media post. They said, um, I don't remember the exact phrase, but it was something like, melatonin is not your usual hormone. It like defies the hormone definition. And it's true. I think sometimes we, we box ourselves in with terms, like even perimenopause. I think for some women, that sounds pretty scary. Like even in the word stress, that sounds kind of scary. The word aging sounds kind of scary. So sometimes we box ourselves in with certain imprints and definitions. But melatonin is, you know, once you get into the science and you look at all of its uses, uh, it's beyond a hormone. So I think that, Kea, to your point about herbatonin, what I like about herbatonin is that it's the naturally occurring melatonin in plants that is the same melatonin in our bodies and it's from the the cell matrix so it's not like it's chemically synthesized it's not an extract where you know there's been alcohol or water it's just the plant material and I think because of that it connects better with our bodies because it's got other things in there like lutein zeaxanthin it's got vitamins you know not high amounts but it was whatever was in that plant so yeah, I, I love that question because I almost want to say when people start posting on social media, it's dangerous. It's like, but they they probably just aren't aware of all of the many intricacies of what melatonin is doing in the body. They just think of it as the pineal gland hormone that comes out at night without thinking about the gut, 
gut microbiome regulation through melatonin. I mean, it's it's quite vast. It's a lot to understand, but um, you know, I'm glad that the word is getting out and that you're asking those kinds of questions. And the other question that people have is, if I start taking melatonin, will I stop making it? There have been at least four different studies that have set out to answer that question, and they have not found that there was any change in pineal gland production of melatonin with taking it. You know, and plus, as we get older, we're losing the production anyway. So it's kind of a moot point. Right, right. It's like, and also well, it's like, stopping? what's worse? Yeah, what's worse, not sleeping or taking, like, you know what I mean? If there's a benefit there, that's the gut benefits, the brain benefits, the sleep benefits, like, Sometimes we do what we have to do to get what we need. So I'm, I love Herbitonin. Another product I want to talk about is Maca, which I was taking for a while from Feminescence, and I really loved it. They have different forms of Maca, which is really interesting because I just thought, okay, there's one type of Maca. But then I learned through this product that there's all these different strains, and through you, that there's all these different strains of Maca. So what is Maca and who should be taking it? Right. So Maca is a food in Peru. If we look at where it's grown, it's a root. So it's a tuber. It's kind of like a potato and it grows in the ground. So it's, you know, in there with the soil. And as it turns out, there are many different colors of maca. There's black maca. There are 13 different colors, but only about four or five of them have been studied. So there's black maca, gray maca, white maca, red maca, yellow maca, and purple. Depending on which kind of maca you're taking, that could give you different effects. And that makes sense, right? Because the color connects to the phytochemicals, the plant compounds. Those plant compounds connect to the function. So what's really interesting, because I just called my dad the other day because I was doing research on red maca. And red maca is specific for the prostate. Black maca doesn't help the prostate. Yellow maca doesn't help the prostate, right? So imagine- Is it the, is it, is there, is there lycopene in red maca? Doesn't it, I'm not sure if it's lycopene, but there seem to be certain other plant compounds. Like there are, in different researchers have talked about this, like the glucosinolates and also these um, other compounds, maybe lycopene, um, but I haven't seen that in studies, but that seems plausible and that, that would make sense. There might be polyphenols of various types that haven't been assessed. Right. So then black maca, um, some really interesting work, even looking at the brain, looking at endurance, yellow maca, which you find as part of the blend in feminescence is connected to ovarian health and nourishing the hypothalamus, the pituitary, the thyroid, adrenal and ovarian access. So it actually the yellow. Well, it, it, there's actually more within feminescence. It's not just one color. There's a proprietary blend but it helps to stimulate the production, the body's natural production of estrogen and progesterone, which could be very helpful going through the perimenopause. So I just think it's kind of neat um, to see all of the, like the rainbow of maca. So when people go to the grocery store and they just buy a big bag of maca, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what kind of an effect you'll get. And I've heard certain people say, oh, well, I got uh, acne or I I didn't feel so good with that particular maca. And when you ask them about the certain phenotype of maca, yeah, they don't know. So um, I think it's really important to know the kind of maca that you're taking. But no, Deanna, that's so interesting with maca. But I want to actually talk about one thing that you mentioned. I know we're coming up on time here where you said, you know, as someone who eats well, who is relatively healthy, you are still dealing with hot flashes. And I feel like at BIA, 
we speak to women in all sorts of situations. We have women who we help them tweak their lifestyle, their food choices, their seed cycling with us, and they see incredible shifts. And then we have another camp of women who are like, I'm doing all these things. I'm eating well, I'm working out. They're seeing naturopath, like they're dialed in, but they're still feeling hot flashes at night for an example. So what are you doing to kind of minimize that in your own life as someone who's in the health space? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, none of us are, are perfect, right? It, like, it's like we're constant. Uh, we're, we're, in, we're in progress. So I am on feminescence and I did change my dose and type of feminescence. So that helped. And you have to look incrementally at like different things that you tweak and how you feel. Like don't make a lot of changes. At least that works for me. So changing my dose of feminescence helped. Changing my dose of herbitonin helped. I also think that for me, one of the issues was hydration. So I began being, and I know Drew is really big into hydration. And as I look at the science on hydration, it's amazing because it's so imperfect. Like we need, there is so much more that we need to know about hydration, but I needed to correct that because something seemed to be off on my hydration, which would tie into my temperature, right? And, and overall, just getting things in and out of the cells kind of a thing, right? All the things that hydration are known for. So that was important. I also, oh, you might find this interesting. I actually stopped exercising so much in the way of aerobic activity. I realizing that I could be changing um, my heart and stressing my cardiovascular system more than I realized. So where I live, there are a lot of hills. And so I was doing some pretty arduous, strenuous walking. And I noticed that my heart rate variability would change on the days that I was walking. So when I stopped doing so much of that and I started to do more strength training instead, that really helped me. So um and I think stress, I always have to keep a pulse on stress. And I think that, you know, stress and the, the way of feeling overwhelmed, not the good, healthy kinds of stress. So I think all of those things. But otherwise, my sleep has improved. Um, no, I, I feel a lot better. And I'm in a much different place now than I was six months ago, for sure. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. You know, it's interesting. No one really brings up hydration. And there's some days where I'm like, I'm eating well, I had some movement, but I'm feeling off. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not drinking enough water. And I wonder, like, you don't hear people say, you know, you're, we all know we have to drink a certain amount, but hydration is probably so key to so many different things. So to hear it's kind of been helpful on your own perimenopausal journey is fascinating. And, you know, one thing you also mentioned about exercise, my acupuncturist, just kind of knowing my nervous system. And again, I know we talked about this in our podcast we did a few years ago. I'm still trying to balance out like the high intensity life I used to live in, the stressfulness. And she's like, I don't think you should be doing these intense workouts just for your body. And I'm like, you know what? even though it's recommended to do, you know, certain exercises, it actually doesn't feel good to me. Like I feel more overwhelmed after an intense class like that. So I love that you're kind of listening to your body and being like, okay, let me shift these, like the intense walks and maybe do more strength training. So I love that you're testing different things. So it just goes back to like really taking a pulse of what feels good to you and tweaking little things one at a time, like you said, so it doesn't feel overwhelming. But I want to end on, one last question. You actually ended on this and we talked about this early on, which is a, the idea of stress, right? We all have stress in our lives. It's actually something I think about a lot, especially as, you know, there's so many high achieving women that are listening in today who are interested in optimizing their health and feeling good. 
And I'm curious, you know, what are maybe some of the, I don't know if rituals is the right word, but some things that you've found in your own life that kind of helps you manage stress a little bit better versus ultimately going in that feeling of overwhelmed. Or maybe it's getting yourself out of that feeling faster than maybe your older self. But I'd love to just kind of hear how you think through it. Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing now because I've tried different things at different times of my life. So what I'm doing now is I notice that I'm a morning person. Like you have to know yourself in terms of your rhythms, right? Even throughout your menstrual cycle, when I was cycling, I would try to do most of my heady, ambitious things like in my follicular phase, like days one through 14. And then I would do more of the creative, reflective things in my luteal phase. So like I actually was pretty keyed into that years ago. So now what I do to help minimize stress is I start my day early and I have a set routine and I do a lot of my heady tasks. I do a lot of the things that I want to do very well, things that require a lot of concentration early in the day. So that means like writing manuscripts or doing teaching things or uh, looking at the literature, you know, all of my high energy investment tasks, I front load to the morning. So then what happens in my afternoon is I, it's not like I'm coasting, but I'm doing things that I could do more on automatic pilot. I'm answering emails. I'm maybe engaging on phone calls, meetings, consults, things like that, where it's not so intellectually taxing. And I feel that I I feel 100 times better doing that. Um, The other thing is like, I like to have one day out, out of the week, usually on a Friday, where it's just more open, where I can you know, I don't have to have that sense of structure, right? It can be more open-ended. I think that women need a sense of flow. You know, flow is so important. Flow, even if we're just kind of like listening to a podcast or just kind of hanging out or vegging, relaxing, those can be actually very productive moments from a creative perspective. And I have found that if I don't have those moments, and I mean, we hear so many people talking about that, like when they're in the flow, it's kind of like things come faster. They come you know, in ways that you would not have put them together just through your mind. So it's like it gives the body a chance to kind of gear up and sync up. And I feel like that minimizes my stress because then I feel ultimately like I'm giving myself time, but I'm being more productive. So I think the the key thing is like you have to know yourself. When do you work best? Like, are you a morning person? Are you a night person? Can you reconfigure your day to meet how you physiologically function. And I think then you offload a lot of stress. Now, for people who aren't morning people who are thrust into a routine, that's a lot of stress. It's physical stress. It's psychological stress. And I'm not saying that everybody can do this because not everybody has that ability to kind of sculpt their weeks and sculpt their work. But if there are small things that you can do to kind of bring you on track and say like, I'm going to handle these tasks. Like my husband was asking me something about the house at nighttime. And I'm like, I can't do not now. No, not now. (laughs) We're going to do it in the morning when I have the bandwidth and the mental like awareness to actually take on that task. So you just have to say no. And sometimes the flow requires us to say no. You know, I love the human design work, you know, of knowing what you are. Are you a manifesting generator? Are you a generator? Are you a projector? What is kind of your template? And I know that for myself as a generator, I'm run by emotion. So if I don't feel something and I'm not engaged, it's going to stress me out. So I really pay attention to that and and where I, I am with that sense of feeling and being authentic with it. So I hope that that answers it. It's, it's a whole bigger framework, but it's been many years in the making of kind of shifting that. 
I love that. And I think it's powerful. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about right now. And I think you were saying, you know, we hear all these recommendations like wake up at 5 a.m. and do this or work out in the morning. Like everybody has their own ritual. I'm sure this could be a whole nother conversation for women because none of that worked. And I used to do that back in the day. But I love what you said in terms of really understanding your own rhythm and trying to add boundaries around that. Like I'm the opposite. I'm realizing this actually this morning. It was a good realization. I'm the opposite of you, meaning the morning I like to focus and work, but to go from zero to hundred, which I naturally am like anyways, to do that from like 7 a.m. And then now I'm on podcasts and I have meetings throughout the day. Like I don't feel overwhelmed too often during the week, but this morning I was like, oh, I was telling my husband, I was like, I feel a little overwhelmed and I'm sure that doesn't help my cortisol levels and my stress. So I was like, gosh, I need to just like take a step back, reorganize the date and have boundaries because especially as like business owners, and I'm sure mothers feel this with kids. I mean, everyone feels this where it's like, there's always going to be demands in your life that pop up. People want to get your thoughts on something. Something happens, life happens, personal stuff. You know, life is just always full of adventures, but I love how you are having boundaries amongst it and just really honoring who you are and your rhythm. So I love that. I feel like we can do a whole nother podcast on this, but it's something that is just very fascinating to me. But Deanna, I so appreciate you joining us today. Oh, we could talk for hours, but it's always makes me just so inspired to hear from you. And we're just so grateful. Thank you. I'm so, it's such a delight to talk with you both. Keep taking that Herbitonin, try out the lower dose and see if that does the trick for you. Cause I've heard so many good results from, from that. So I'm curious how that works for you. And again, it's just like finding, you know, the sweet spot for all of us in so many respects. So thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Deanna. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.